0: All right, welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery, and I'm as happy as I can be, just very proud to have my friend Dr. Paul Cleveland on today, and uh, Dr. Paul Cleveland is a PhD economist out of Birmingham Southern, and uh, you, you're you currently um, What do, what do you call that? This is where probably too much production, post production, needs to be made. Uh, you're a you're a professor and a fellow at Birmingham Southern.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I guess I wear several different hats. I'm a professor at Birmingham Southern, so, and um, this is my 30th year at the college. Uh, I'm teaching primarily finance uh, at this point. But uh, then I'm also work as a senior research fellow with the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. They're located up uh, just outside of DC in McLean, Virginia. Uh, I work with the Apologetics Resource Center uh, here in Birmingham and do some work for them. And uh, then I also um, have done you know affiliated work with with other organizations uh, as
0: well. Uh, prolific author and speaker very good author very good speaker i mean you're just an all-around great guy but and i would (laughs) i give it my pass oh good job sir um you know i think we we met through the nelson nash right um you you have i don't know how long did you know nelson before he passed
1: (sighs) I, I first met nelson in uh, November of 1991 wow and we became friends virtually right away uh, I tell you the truth uh, James um, the longer it's been since I've seen him the more I miss him and yeah, uh, yeah. i mean we we would go to lunch uh, periodically and and it's just you know n- not being able to just call and and go over and visit with him. I uh, I do miss those times.
0: Yeah, I, I understand that I miss him terribly. Like you said, as the time goes on, it I miss him more. Just just the ability to to you know fire off a phone call and have a fifteen twenty minute conversation with sure. him on a regular basis. Um, But that's how we met through Nelson Nash and and the uh, think tanks that he held prior to the formation of the Nelson Nash Institute, which I believe that occurred in 2013. Um, And I think the first book that I read of yours was Unmasking the Sacred Lies.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah, that was a good book. It's actually my second book. Um, But I wrote it kind of for a a broad audience. And uh, I had a dual... Interest in that book. One, it was intended for a, a broad audience, but it was also kind of the skeletal structure for a course that I was teaching at Birmingham Southern on Public Choice, and um, and so really for the students, they read the book, they would read each chapter, but then they would also read all the articles that were the references, um, and uh, and so that we dug into. The issue of public choice, and really the, the book itself is, is a his economic history of public policy in America, or as I would like to say, how did we get into this mess?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I love the cover. You know, Belshazzar, the handwriting yeah, on the wall. <laughs> the handwriting on the wall. I
1: mean, it's amazing. I mean, you would think people would get this. We're we're twenty two trillion dollars in debt. It continues to climb every year. Uh, government's blown way out of proportion, out of control. They cannot make good on the promises that they've And, you know, at some point, they got to give it up.
0: What, what do you think that would look like when they give it up?
1: <sighs> well, that's a good question. I'm really not even sure uh, what it would look like is – beginning to fess up to realities uh, of the marketplace, and um, that is beginning to cut back on programs and cut back on spending. I mean, until they get spending under control and begin to seriously address it and begin to cut back, there's not really a solution. Um, It, you know, Taxation at some points not going to bring in more revenues. It's n- it's going to destroy the economy, and you can't just continue to go into debt. But uh, at this point, that looks like that was that's been their choice
0: and uh, their game plan. I, I don't <clears throat> I don't believe they have the ability to fess up. I mean,
1: <laughs> well, it doesn't look like I, I just I, on my social media account I posted a. Uh, uh, a meme of that great American philosopher, uh, Alfred E. Newman. And uh, he, of Mad Magazine, he said that uh, (laughs) the only time a politician is telling the truth when he's calling other politicians liars.
0: (laughs) That's pretty, uh, that's accurate.
1: Yeah, that's pretty accurate.
0: That's very accurate. And then, too, uh, did you write... Um, the uh, Understanding the Modern Culture Wars. Was that your first? That,
1: that was it. Yeah, that was my first book. And uh, Nelson introduced me to another. Nelson was my mentor, but another mentor in my life was uh, a scholar, Clarence uh, Carson. And Clarence was a historian by training. And he was out to produce, really, I think, history and social science for uh, for high schoolers. He, he, American history was his main area of interest as a historian, and he produced a six-volume American history set. In, in the 1980s, he had written uh, an economics text. And then, his really, the last text he wrote in this series was Basic American Government. And, uh, and I was actually on his board when that book was published. There was one other one that he he hadn't gotten to, and that was Western Civilization. Well, he got me to do it. <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, here, it was kind of strange here. I am the economist getting into this. But it was really, a, it was a great project for me because I learned so much about history, and, you know, world history, in the process of, of writing that book. And, and he said right from the start that what we're trying to do here is Not just a complete, you know, really thorough uh, Western civilization text, but we're going to paint with broad brushstrokes, as he did in many of his books. But we're trying to get across the main themes of history and social science, the main principles that people really need to know. So, you know, in my little book business now, for whatever reason, all these books have fallen to me and I... My goal is to keep them alive for the public, for homeschoolers as well as uh, Christian schools or even in private schools in general. Uh, these are really solid tax.
0: I think that's a blessing. That's the reason <clears throat> you're able and capable of right. you know, keeping that. So He also, and, and I think that I have seen one video, I think on YouTube of Clarence uh-huh. Carson, um, but he also wrote The World in the Grip of an Idea, didn't
1: he? he? Yes, he did. And this was uh, this was a book that he published back in the 1970s, uh, so a long time ago. And anyway, uh, you know how Nelson was a voracious reader.
0: Yes. And
1: uh, Nelson was laying on his couch, and I guess he was having some back pain one day, and he wanted something to read, and he, he, he saw this book on the shelf, and he'd read it, you know, before. And so he got Mary, his wife, in to to get that book down for him so he could read it again. And he had come to me, and he, he said, Paul, Paul, we must republish this book. Yeah. Well, it was a great scholarly book. I mean, it was just uh, chock full of, of really good ideas and understanding of, of the situation of political economy in the world. And um, the problem was it, was, it was 500 pages, and it was academic. I mean, that, you know, I had read the book uh, many years ago, and so when when Nelson had come to me with that, I was, I was like, well, let me read it. And as I read through it, I was like, oh, this is good. You know, it's really good, but, um, you know, at the same time, there's not really a market for it. Nobody today is going to go out and, <laughs> and read a 500-page book. Um, so I thought about it for a while, and I went to uh, Clarence's daughters, Evelyn and Melissa, and I said, would you all mind if I tried to work with what he did? And we'll, uh, I enlisted a, a friend of mine. Uh, who we went to grad school together, Dwayne Barney, and um, we just got together and we read through it and we said, what can we do with this? And we so we turned it into, we pulled out of that, redid many parts of it, and we put together a book and we called it The Great Utopian Delusion, mm-hmm. The Global Rise of Government and the Destruction of Liberty. And so... Uh, I think if you know we we're trying to aim for a popular audience and bring his material down to the level that that uh, anyone could read and learn from especially in an age where young people millennials especially are talking about how much they like socialism and they've never lived in a socialist economy and they don't know what one it looks like and if they really found out they would run from it as quickly as they possibly could. All right.
0: I remember Nelson being—he was very giddy, um, whenever you did re when you wrote and published the Great Utopian Delusion. I remember that, and I think <clears throat> I think he hit a home run. It's uh, it's not five hundred pages, maybe a little over a hundred pages. Yes, yeah, um, just over a hundred. Yeah, and everybody should read that book, and I, I think everybody should read "Unmasking the Sacred Lies" as well, because they're relatively they're easy reads. They're not over academic. You know, it doesn't seem like it's written solidly. I mean, you're an academician. Don't misunderstand me, but yeah, these these books anyone can read. And
1: well, that was our that was really our aim, James, is to make it uh, really accessible to just anybody Mm -hmm. could pick up and read the book and, and gain from it. So that was our goal.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you hit a home run there, sir. And now, now you're doing a lot of work in the private school, the homeschooling area, right?
1: Well, that's, that's right. I mean, that's what we've been up to lately is, um, you know, we're, we're, We've got all of Clarence's work, and and we still have mine, of course. And so we just updated uh, the basic economics. We had done an update, I don't know, about 10 years ago, and then people really liked it, what we did. But uh, the one thing that we got back was that it was at too high a level for the average student. I mean, you pretty much had to be your, you know, to go at it uh, at your own pace and, and be able to dig through it pretty much on your own. And so we decided, okay, well, let's let's try to make this um, more accessible to the average high school student. And so that was our goal. We I, I enlisted my son, who's now actually teaching high school economics <laughs> and uh, and he read through the the third edition that we had and he would he would come in to me and he goes dad I'm reading this sentence what what do you mean here and I would tell him he said well why don't you just say that <laughs> and so, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway uh, working with him I mean we really went through that book and tried to update it uh tried to make it really user-friendly. So now it's textbook-like. Uh, we have study guides at the end of each chapter that have identification terms, all those sorts of things. So now the, all those terms are defined in the margins like most textbooks do. And um, and then we have pull-outs and other sorts of things with the main point that we're driving at in the chapter and and then not only that, but, uh, we also, uh, have developed an online class that pairs with the book. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, if a homeschool family wanted to use the text and then purchase the class and we have a package deal on that. So you can actually get through economics in one semester, um, by doing that. And so I think we're, we've priced it very competitively and, um, uh, you know, we ha- we think we've got a good product for homeschoolers, and it's not going to be the kind of socialism that might be taught as economics in the public schools. And wow. um, we've we've worked on that. We now have a, a online course to go with the government. We've not yet updated the government book, and we're in the process of trying to take the six volume history set and and uh, work with it and update it and put it in that kind of form as well.
0: When when was that basic economics, the third edition? Is that what you said? When you Yeah,
1: the third edition, uh, what had happened was a, ne- a Clarence passed away in 2003. And um, he, you know, the uh, in the 1990s, I had done the study guide for the bug. Mm-hmm. And it had been added to, to it, and it was in paperback form. And so then I, um, I went to, um, after Clarence passed away and his wife passed away, I thought, you know, this book, I, I like the content, but it's really out of date. I mean, if you read through the book, because it was written in the 80s, he wrote it from the perspective that... Um, that the Soviet Union still exists. And it did when he wrote the book. So there are a lot of things in it that needed to be updated um, if the book was going to you know, continue to be useful. And so once again, Evelyn and, and Melissa agreed. And uh, so they turned that over to me as a project. And so I spent a lot of time you know, updating everything, rewriting, you know, some things. And um, we put it out as a third edition at that point. Um, and so that, that was our process.
0: Was that in 2003 or 4?
1: I think mm-hmm. that was like 2008 or 9. Right. It, it, it might have been that the publication date on the third edition could have been as late as 2010. I, I'd have to go look.
0: I think those are the, the the copies that I have, is a third edition. Yeah, it could be. yeah. <clears throat> And that's, you know, that should, that really should be required reading in my well, opinion.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, if you want to learn economics, because most economics today, one of the things I like about it is we're coming at this from a natural law perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Modern mainstream economics is written from uh, its undergirding moral philosophies, utilitarianism, that was um, the point of view of Jeremy Bentham and popularized really mainly by his most famous student, John Stuart Mill, and Mill uh, produced the most widely used economics textbook in the late 19th century. So it had a huge impact upon economics. And he was this utilitarian. In other words, utilitarianism is, is that public policy should be based on a hedonistic calculus. That is, any particular law or program, if it adds more to happiness than... It causes pain, then we should do it. So, you know, in other words, are we making people happy? But my thing was with that, I, you know, I kind of reject that because how do you measure it? Uh, Bentham now had a term. He said, well, the unit of measure is a util. Well, I ask my, I ask people all the time, how much is a util? (laughs) And they, nobody can tell me. I can't tell you. Um, now, you know, things that are measurable, we have some sense of it, you know, like volume, uh, and there may be different measures of volume, but, you know, like a liter as opposed to a gallon or those sorts of things, but we can create units of measure for volume and things like that, distance and, and such things, but, you know, happiness or that sort of thing, there's there's no measurement, uh, and so... But that's where the political class is today. You know, they're telling mm-hmm. us they're all doing these cost-benefit studies for public policy issues. And we're, we're taking polls. You know, so we're going to stick our fingers in the air and see which way the wind blows. You know, I mean, and, and I tell people all the time, I said, you know, Bill Clinton, when he occupied the Oval Office, he told us that he could feel our pain. <laughs> And I tell people all the time that, well, Bill felt all sorts of things when he was in that uh, office.
0: His utils were off the charts. But our pain
1: <laughs> wasn't one of them. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, it, it, it's craziness. It's just nonsense that to, to you know kind of go down that path. But most people have defaulted to that mindset today, and they and many times, without even realizing it, without sure. even realizing the implications of making those sorts of statements, so anyway, um, well, we've, we've, ab- we've abandoned that approach for natural law, which is the you know old school, that every person should have uh, their life, liberty, and property protected. Uh, and that's the function of government. It's not to make everybody happy.:
0: all right. So expand on natural law, you know, when it comes to economics.
1: Okay, well, the whole idea of natural law is that, you know, I mean, you can, you can come at it from a secular point of view, uh, or you can come at it from a Christian point of view, and the Christian point of view is simple, that God has created a moral order. And it's encapsulated in, in terms of our personal interactions is encapsulated in uh, the Ten Commandments, and main, mainly the second half of the Ten Commandments, you know, honor your father and mother puts an emphasis on, you know, due respect for proper authority structures, right? I mean, that's really behind it. Uh, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Those are all things like personal interactions with one another. And then, the you know, of course, the last one about coveting. Well, there's the source of it all. When we, when we begin to covet each other's uh, positions or their property or whatever else, then that's what causes societies to break down and uh, to fall apart. Uh, at At the limit, all socialism is is just a... It's a political economy of systematic theft, which is why they always collapse, that they cannot work uh, for that reason, uh, because, you know, the thief has to rely upon a logical fallacy that what's good for the thief is good for everybody, and of course it's not. It's just good for the thief. You're a pain in the rear to everybody else, but... And so when everybody tries to become a thief and, and use government to live off the, uh, the production of other people, then we quit producing things. We go stand in the government line for the handout, but there's nothing to, to receive at the end of the day. In other words, you finally get to the end of the line to get your hand out. There's nothing to hand out. Well, and um, yep.
0: <clears throat> We're halfway there
1: yeah we're moving in that direction
0: so that's interesting <clears throat> the systematic uh method of theft what'd you say how'd you phrase that
1: well i just say it was a political economy that's based upon a, a systematic theft that's yeah. kind of the way i phrased it uh, I mean,
0: we're, we're, i think we may be uh more than halfway there
1: well i don't know <laughs> we're quite there i think uh I think I think numbers right now, at least measurable numbers, that about a th- on average about a third of everyone's property is being stolen every year by the government. Now, you know, the go- we, we still need government, so it's maybe not quite a third because that's the total, but we don't need government doing a whole lot of things that government is doing because a lot of what government does is just taking from one person to try to give a benefit to some other person. Sure. And it's usually, and, and while most people think, well, we're, we're, you know, these are welfare programs. No, not so much. I mean, the welfare is actually mainly going to uh, corporations um, who could actually be on their own and produce viable products in the marketplace. And so if you look at a company, I, I can distinguish between what they do well as a private company, and then what they're, what they're receiving just because government has chosen to subsidize.
0: Well, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but how much government do we need?
1: <laughs> I would say uh, a lot less than we have now. Uh, right. As it started out, really for the first little, more than 100 years, uh, if you add it up, all governmental expenditures, both federal, state, and local expenditures, it was less than 10% of GDP. And for the federal government, it's actually less than uh, 2%. That that most government was state and local, mm-hmm. where which it should be, right? I mean, right. if you think about the purpose of government is to protect Provide equal protection for each individual's life, his liberty, and his property. Well, most of that's done at the local level, right? In other words, it's the local uh, police department that goes after murders, rapists, and thieves, uh, and and that's really the way it should be. Now, it, there can be situations where, uh, in a broader scale, you might need you need the federal government. Most of the federal government. Though activity is to provide for the national defense, um, I, on this one I, I would say I'm not quite sure that entails having an army that traipses around the world and tries to fight everybody else's fight. I'm not sure that's a good idea at all.
0: Right, right. There's an absolute difference between defense and offense. Right, right. right. The Department of War prior to World War II, and now the Department exactly. of Defense. Yeah,
1: So we've yeah. kind of veered off course, uh, is, is my estimation, in many different ways. And uh, so the growing size of government, once you have embraced utilitarianism, well, there's no particular end. I, because all people can think of why it would be good to redistribute somebody else's property in a particular way. And they go, well, this is a good purpose. We need to give more money to that. Well, there's no particular end to that. And so it's denying a fundamental aspect of economics, and that's the notion of economic scarcity. And if you look at the, the very fact of creation itself, that was God building it into the very you know, essence of his creation. He created us as finite creatures with a cultural mandate. You know, the cultural mandate was go into all the world and be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. Well, Adam and Eve didn't know everything about how things work. They were going to have to figure it out. And so work and production itself were built into the system. And that meant they were going to have to make choices, you know, how to spend and how to utilize whatever, you know, resources they had at hand to accomplish whatever task they thought was most important at the time. That's economics. And uh, so, you know, I think a lot of people think that uh, scarcity is something that occurred after the fall. Well, no, that's not true. It was built into creation itself what the fall did and what the curse the ground did meant that this uh, this world's not going to treat us very well (laughs) anymore Uh, there's going to be thorns and thistles sweat of our brow all those sorts of things there's going to be a lot of frustration because creation's going to work against us and not with us Uh, so that's what the fall did just made
0: it hard that's interesting I like that and then, uh, not too long after Adam and Eve, that that uh, laborious requirement to produce some smart aleck figured out that theft was the first labor-saving device. Huh? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's a it's a sad story of history from that point forward. Um, you know, it's it, it, all empire building. Uh, if you it, you know, this is one of the things that really just occurred to me right off. All empire building. Uh, really what it amounted to was uh, I liken it to uh, mafia gangs <laughs> and uh, that utilize their, you know, uh, power and weaponry to steal for themselves from their neighbors. Uh, and it's, it's really kind of fascinating when you get into it. Uh, you know, if, if you look at, say, the Assyrians, uh, they were of Semitic origin And they were living in the Mesopotamia River Valley. They were up the Fertile Crescent. And then there were the Sumerians that were living down the Fertile Crescent, closer to the Persian Gulf. And so one of the problems that these uh, agrarian communities had is that uh, robber bands would come out of the mountains at harvest time and, and begin to, you know, we're going to rape and pillage and plunder you for your produce because that's how we make our living. So one of the things that they had to do is they would have to try to protect themselves and have some you know, self-defense. Well, it, it, it turns out that the Sumerians were actually far better farmers. They developed the best farming techniques, and and those sorts of things. So they actually ended up being able to produce a lot more agricultural products than the Assyrians. On the other hand, the Assyrians had better military strategies, and so while they didn't produce as much, they kept more of it because they were able to defend themselves better than the Sumerians. Well, eventually, it occurred to the Assyrians that, you know... We do have some pretty decent military tactics here. We could just march down the river here and lay siege to the community, and we could make them an offer they can't refuse. (laughs) And our offer will go like this You know, for a tribute, uh, we'll make sure bad things don't happen to you. But if you refuse to pay, we can almost guarantee you that bad things will happen to you. <laughs> and, and so there you go. There's the way the uh, Assyrian Empire gets started.
0: I feel like a Samaritan living in an Assyrian <laughs> Empire.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, we all can. And so, you, you know, the thing is, you got to try to figure <clears throat> out ways to protect yourself from the Assyrians today, right?
0: Right. That's That's really the world I live in trying to you know protect myself and
1: and your family you know, and uh the you production know, others and your friends yeah. and, and i mean that's the thing that yeah. because i mean you look at these uh at the candidates that are running for office especially on the democrat side oh my <laughs> I mean, what a wasteland
0: <laughs> it's it's Almost comical. If it wasn't, well, I guess most comedy is based in tragedy, right? So, well, yeah. I,
1: I saw a nice meme on social media about uh, Elizabeth Warren says that only, uh, only government can be trusted with guns. Uh, And the follow-up was, you think being an Indian and all, she'd know better than that.
0: (laughs) I've seen that. You know, um, we live in Alvarado, Texas, about 20 miles south of Fort Worth Uh in Johnson County. And so President Trump came into Alvarado, Johnson County, because there's a new Louis Vuitton production facility That's going into operations, or maybe they're already in operations. So it was a big deal. And then he spoke in Dallas. He had a rally at uh, American Airlines. And I'm saying all that. I try to avoid, I don't watch TV. I try to avoid all the politics. But, you know, since he was driving through your own town, and we're a little old town of 4,000, you know, I wound up watching a good portion of his uh, speech last night. And I'm telling you, I, 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 it was fun. I was laughing about half the time listening to him. You know, he's uh, hugging on all these Texas Republicans and then kind of slapping them around at the same time and hugging them. And, I mean, I had fun. I, I enjoyed listening to him uh-huh. in that speech uh, that he gave yesterday. Um, you know, he's, he's talking about these endless wars and – and uh it, it was just enjoyable. So not that I think you necessarily want to listen to a bunch of politicians talk, but I had fun watching or listening to that.
1: Well so. he you know, I think he's pretty good at that. I mean that's really how he got elected, right? I mean he appeals to a very broad spectrum yeah. regardless of whether his ideas are right or wrong. Right. All right. and uh and you know that's been his success and yeah he's gotten a few things i mean he's tried on target on some things i mean you gotta admit and then on other things you go you scratch your head and you go really <laughs>
0: so, yeah uh, not to be political but i was just as surprised as probably he was when he got elected all right <clears> then <throat> yeah then he he goes to washington and you know henry kissinger flies in or whatever goes on i think he was pretty much squared away you know we're gonna let you do this but we're still spending you know four trillion dollars on the military industrial complex so and i think that's really more the same in politics um i mean
1: it, they, they don't they sure don't like him up there I, that's for sure um, he has shaken things up a good bit and um and they're doing everything they can to, to get him out. Uh, uh,
0: that, that gives me hope. So he must be doing something, right? Or,
1: well, he must be doing, yeah. I mean, that, uh, that the inside elite uh, doesn't like him at all means that he is challenging their uh, cush little deal. And nothing really wrong with that that I can see. But once again... Some of the policies that he's pursuing, I would say, I mean, you know, the whole tariff stuff uh, in my mind is, well, it's what, you know, if if your end goal is to really create free enterprise, well, well and good, and get rid of all trade restrictions, Mm -hmm. well and good. But if you can't achieve that goal this way, I mean, you're punishing your own people by doing this. And um, so... uh, I mean, what's what is, you know, what's the end? I mean, what is it? You know, can you get there? Can you get people to give up all their trade barriers? Well, if we can, that then that's great. Uh, but uh, if that doesn't work, then it's going to backfire, and um, and be a problem. So, I, you know, on that on that level, I you know, bit a little befuddled. Then he also has made statements about trying to keep, you know, why can't we uh, have negative interest rates like the Europeans? Right. <laughs> well, that's insanity. <laughs> you know, that, that's just pure insanity. I, our Federal Reserve is already out of control on this one, and and to go deeper in that hole, I mean, that, that can only blow up in our face, and eventually it's going to, right? I mean, all that easy money that they've created out of thin air, uh, is a is a serious problem, and a lot of people don't understand how money works and have bought into that one.
0: Yeah. I think Jeff Dice wrote an article, Zero Interest Rates, the Destruction of Civilization, uh-huh. something along those lines. <clears throat> I haven't read I mean, it. Really, I've just seen it. but
1: I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, historically, short-term rates should be 4 or 5%. I mean, yes. that's just, that's what, that's where... Short term rates should
0: be. I mean, that's that goes all the way back to recorded history.
1: Sure. I mean, Those that's yep. you know, uh, and because at the end of the day, uh, there is a, we do have rates of time preference. Nobody is going to uh, postpone consumption today for the future and not get a rate of return. Right. That that notion that people have rates of time preference is so fixed in, you know, our understanding of things that it's it's crazy to think that we can just endlessly manipulate the rate to virtual zero. Uh which is what the Fed has been doing for quite a while now.
0: Yeah, then let's go negative here. I'll pay you five thousand dollars to hold my one hundred thousand dollars this year.
1: <laughs> yeah, boy, I tell you people start putting that money in a in a jar in their backyard at that point.
0: You know? I, I still feel like a Sumerian, you know, in a, in a <laughs> land of Assyrians, you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, that's, that's one of the nice things about infinite banking is that I don't have to put my money in a jar in the backyard. I can, right. I can actually uh, get a rate of return on it that makes sense of uh, the four or five percent that makes sense. And I can have access to the, to the dollars as well. Yeah. So
0: well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because you you personally have practiced um, the infinite banking concept a long time.
1: I, I have. Uh, now I was a I was a, a tough nut to crack because after all, I had a I had a degree in economics, a PhD, and one of my areas of specialization was finance. And um,
0: you know, <laughs> well, you, you had a head start. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I remember when Nelson's first trying to explain uh, his infinite banking concept to me, and I'm like, you know, huh? <laughs> I've always heard you 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 buy term and you invest the rest. And you know, here I was. I I kind of knew, you know, that uh, trying to save and for things that you wanted was a good idea. You know, I knew that. And and so I'm trying to do it the old-fashioned way through the market, right? So, you know, I'm trying to get a rate of return through a mutual fund, but I'm getting tax on the return, and I'm not making any headway whatsoever to be able to outright purchase like an automobile or anything like that. And um, so now... Nelson's like Paula got a better way, yeah. <laughs> 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 and you know, and, uh, and I started looking at it, and I, I thought, you know, I I know Nelson. You know, he's a voracious reader. Is he understands economics pretty well, and um, and on paper, I you know I look at it, and I go, well, yeah, this is this would work. I mean, it's a long term strategy, but I kind of like that. You know, he saves a little by a little, makes it grow, and. So I can, you know, I kind of got that. And, and so I just, uh, you know, I I stuck my toe in the water. Now was hard too at first for Mm -hmm. me to do so, but, um, but I did. And boy, that, I tell you that first policy today, man, I've used that so much. Um, well, that's got me into business. It's got my whole business going. And, um, so after, after a, a, a lot of success with that first little policy, I, I took out a policy on each of my children who were fairly young at the time I did it, and they weren't big. But even those two policies now have uh, significant cash values to them. And we've been able to use those. Uh, my, you know, I mentioned my son is now teaching high school. Well, we were able to put him through His master's program with policy loans, so and uh, and he's paying it back, and you know life's good, and he's going to have all that money back, you know that he'll uh, in the in the long term, and uh, you know the other thing is I I remember (laughs) at the college uh, we had a, a as most colleges experience here and there, when a president comes in who doesn't understand economics and is a communist.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> a conflict of interest. <laughs> they,
1: they tend to spend money because they don't have a clue. And uh, they, they nearly bankrupt the, the, the institution, which this guy did. And they were, you know, in, a, in the midst of total financial crisis at my school at Birmingham Southern, um, they, they put a moratorium on uh, committing anything to this retirement plan. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, I guess I need to take out another policy. <laughs> so, I, so I cranked up another one. And, you know, while everybody else was uh, having difficulties because I'd started the little book business, uh, you know, and I run everything through a you know, whether it's an honorarium for speaking, whether it's um, I'm doing uh, some consulting work for a university on curriculum or whatever, or book sales, all that is run through uh, my business, which is, you know, LLC. And, and so, one, my business had a great year that year. I ended up buying an automobile and I took a, and I took out another policy so it was all good you know life continued on and, and but my colleagues now th- they're still struggling you know mm. they have it and and we're talking we're 9 years later now and they're still struggling so I yeah. you know, figure
0: well, I, I like that uh, you know when you mentioned the the policies on your children, and now they're significant. I mean, these whenever you pay premium into policies structured like this, you accumulate a lot more cash value. I understand you see illustrations and you look at numbers on a page, and it makes sense, right? And then when you do it, um, it doesn't take very long when you look up, and it's it really it surprised to me. And it surprises a lot of our clients how much cash they actually accumulate.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I just then, started another policy yeah. <laughs> three years ago. <laughs> well, actually, two years ago, I just paid my third premium into it. Uh, it's a big one. It's a, it's, I, I've bitten off a, a significant chunk because I know how it's going to work. you yeah. know, And I know this is going to end up being a game changer Uh you know, not not just for myself and Kathy, but for our kids. I mean, you know, they're grown now. Caleb is married and uh, Katie is in a serious relationship with a young man that we really like a lot. And, you know, I mean, that's going to end up changing their lives. I mean, it, it, they're going to end up in a situation that uh, they'll be financially uh, secure when a lot of people around us are just not going to be, you know, it, because it's going to get more and more difficult.
0: Right. Just protection from the Assyrians. I'm going to use it. I'm, I'll reference it. Okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. Protection <laughs> I like
1: from the Assyrians. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe we need to write a book, James. <laughs> Sumerians <laughs> right. in a, in an Assyrian world. <laughs> right.
0: And, and how IBC makes sense, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, uh,
1: we could do that.
0: Yeah. Well, um, looking back, you know, practicing the infinite banking concept, you know, buying large, premium, high cash value life insurance. Looking back, knowing what you know and, and, and experiencing what you have experienced, um, would you do anything different?
1: I would have been more aggressive earlier, to be honest. I, you know, uh, I would have taken out bigger policies and uh found a way to pay for them if yeah. there's any if i looking back on it, if there's anything that i would have done differently that was it because uh they grow and they yeah. you know they continue to grow and uh, that rate of growth is and what it what it, the freedom it it brings especially when situations come up that are difficult or when opportunities come up mm-hmm. and if Really is you know as I look back if I had done bigger policies I think I could have taken advantage of other opportunities that would have generated um, really free cash flow for me and uh, those sorts of things are good now most of what see most of what I've invested in it, that's going to generate free cash flow has been my business right which made perfect sense to me. But why not things like real estate or you know other sorts of things like that, which you know if you if you can get in with a group and and buy houses that are in rent you know fix them up, rent them out, and and begin to generate some free cash flow coming in and pay the your policy loans back. It seems like a no brainer uh, to do things like this. So, you know, and. My only problem with doing some of those things is capitalization. Mm-hmm. Right? That, so I would just tell people, you know, do what you think and then probably do a little bit that you think you could do and then do a more right. uh, because you'll be surprised at, at how well it's going to work even if it's hard at first, even if it's really difficult at first, you know, give yourself uh, ten years, and you're going to you're, you're going to start seeing the difference in, in your situation uh, dramatically improve uh, in that time. I mean that that first policy, and I tell you, it was small. I mean, relatively speaking, sure. but uh, cash value in that thing is over six figures.
0: All right. Did, did it raise Kathy's eyebrow when you bought the first policy? Yeah. <laughs> the, the yeah she,
1: uh, she was, uh, you know, she was a little concerned, but the, the more we've used it, the, the more comfortable she's gotten with it. And, uh, sure. you know, I th- it, and I tell people the first time I used the policy was uh, we, the first house that we'd bought in Birmingham we had the heating and air conditioning system go out in it. So it was going to be about, I think it was around $3,500 was going to be the uh, the cost. I mean, I had taken some beds and we had decided on one that was it was going to be $3,500 every really. <clears throat> I had called Nelson because, you know, I just had started this policy and, and um, a few years before that, I don't know exactly how long, I think I'd, I was about three or four years into it. And so I called Nelson, I said, Nelson, do I, you know, do I have enough cash value in there to borrow $3,500? And he goes, oh yeah, I'll get him to send you the check. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I remember, uh, you know, uh, doing the deal with the, with the company, and they came in, of course there was, uh, well, Mr. Cleveland, how do you want to pay for this? And so I said, "Well, do you take Mastercard?" <laughs> and and they said, "Well, we can give you a better interest rate than that." I said, "No, I you don't give me. I, it, it was a shell Mastercard at the time, and I could use thirty five dollars worth of gasoline. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and and of course I was going to pay that. I wasn't paying interest to in Mastercard. I was just going to use their money for a while, <laughs> and which I did." And um, so the whole thing worked out great, and you know I, I do teach finesse, James, so I, I know how to amortize a loan, <laughs> and and so I you know I kind of said okay, let me amortize this thing and let me start paying monthly. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna steal the peas. I know Nelson's taught me that one. So uh, I, I was writing out the check every month and, and paying off the loan. Well, you know, I was at the time, I mean, our our game plan on buying automobiles at that time was we had uh, the old car, which, by the way, is, was also my car, <laughs> and then the wife's car, the new car, right? Right. So, um, that's
0: how that works. <laughs>
1: that's how it works. And, and my game plan was you drive the old car until it don't go anymore, you know? Right. So, um, anyway... And, but I never had enough really capital to buy an automobile outright and have the title from day one. You know, I was always trying to save enough to, you know, get a down payment and make it a, the loan as small as possible. And so I still owed money on my wife's car, and, uh, if this and, but I, I was about a year into paying off the loan on the uh, heating and air conditioning system. And I got to thinking about it and I was like, well, wait a second. I've put enough money back and I've also paid another premium. I bet I could pay off this bank loan <laughs> to the car dealership. And uh, I started looking into it and what he you know I could. So I borrowed the money back out, I paid the bank off on that car and I was already used to making both payments so I just combined the two payments and now I'm making that payment. Um, now I did something that was really dumb. Uh, next, in hindsight, it was dumb. Eventually, my, the old car was wearing out, and I needed a new car. <clears throat> so we went and looked around. We found, what, you know, what we thought would be good, and and we made the deal. But I was like twenty five hundred dollars short of being able to. Take the policy loan totally out of that uh, uh, to buy that car, and the old car wasn't worth, you know. Of course, I didn't get much of anything for it, so I had to borrow that twenty five hundred. I financed that for two years. It was the dumb mistake because I was paying off. I I took the rest out of a policy loan. Mm-hmm. So, I'm paying off the policy loan, but I'm, I'm making these payments to the bank because I did it for two years. I should have done it for seven. How many ever years they would have loaned me the money, right? And made bigger payments <laughs> to the insurance company and smaller payments to the bank. I would uh-huh. have still paid the bank off probably in less than a year. Uh-huh. Or, you know. Let, certainly less than two years, but um, you know, it would it would have been smart to have done that because I'd have had more cash flow going the other way. Right. And, um, things you learn when yeah, and in, in the infinite bank.
0: <clears throat> How's that for an economic lesson?
1: Yeah. Anyway.
0: Right.
1: You know there there, but never. You know, despite little things like this, um, it just continued to work. I. From that automobile onward, uh, I've I've never purchased an automobile with any bank money. Uh, uh, I've always just borrowed from a policy.
0: You're a good student.
1: Yeah, and you know it's so funny too. You go in you go in the dealership, and you you finally you make the deal, yeah. and you, you're happy with the price, and you're happy with the terms, and. And then you go to the finance office, and they go, well, how do you want to pay for this, Mr. Cleveland?" And I go, well, you, now I go, do you take American Express? <laughs> 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 because I have a Delta American Express card, and I can use the miles. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, I do it that way. It, it, interesting, they'll put $5,000 on an American Express card. Mm. Which is it, um, surely,
0: surely the F&I guy said or asked you the question or told you, that they could give you a better rate, right?
1: Well, actually, they uh, <laughs> a lot of them don't do that. Uh, at least the, one of the dealerships I've been dealing with most doesn't do that. They just kind of ride with it and they go on because I'm writing a check. Uh, I think they get it. I'm writing a check right. for the better part. And they see the card, the card the card that I'm paying with, and I think they get it right off while I'm doing it that way.
0: Yeah, I remember Nelson used to say. And he said it often that you know this practicing this concept will cover an awful lot of mistakes.
1: Oh it, you know? uh, yeah, it absolutely will, and uh, and I've made a number of them uh, sure. over time. Um, you know. And, and things just, things just don't work out sometimes like you would like. And so, um, but you know, it, it, like I said, it continues to grow. And so despite some of the mistakes I've made financially or decisions I've made on certain purchases, uh, you know, it's kind of washed out and, uh, you know, over the long haul, we're continuing to make financial price, uh you know, progress in our lives, and you know, so that's the key.
0: Yeah. Well, did the last policy raise Kathy's eyebrows?
1: The yeah. Uh, when I told her how much, she was yeah. like, "Well, that's pretty aggressive, isn't it?" <laughs> 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 I said, "Yeah, but we'll be a whole lot better off in about you know seven years if we do this." And she goes, "I, I get it. Let's do it." You know, so right. she, she didn't object too much. Uh, right. And and I, I'll tell you, trying to figure out these first three uh, uh, premium payments that I've made, they've you know kind of it's. it's I had to be kind of creative here a little, in, uh, here yep. and there, and. uh but, it, you know, anyway, it, it's working out. Perfect.
0: Well, you've been very gracious with your time, and I don't want to abuse it at all. Um, anything you'd like to share before we come to an end?
1: Uh, well, I don't know. I'd, you know, if uh, your audience out there is uh, thinking about Infinite Bank, you know, I, I would encourage them to look into it. Also, if... Um, if you know young millennials who need an education, they need to get off this socialism stuff. And and really, I think they've embraced socialism out of more ignorance than anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're res- I think their response is they see the kind of rising tide of corporatism mm-hmm. in America. And they, they equate that with being free enterprise or capitalism. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Mm-hmm and uh and so they're rejecting that well i'd reject that too i mean i sure i don't see any reason why uh corporations shouldn't be given any sorts of special privilege of subsidies or or whatever and uh but that's not free enterprise free enterprise is just voluntary exchange between people and uh, once you once you get that down then you can begin to look at the world a little more objectively so uh, you know, that's what we're trying to do with our books. And so if you, if you need to, uh, try to educate, uh, family or friends and in, in that regard, you know, check us out, go to our website, boundarystone.org and, and check out what we have to offer.
0: Right. No, I'm, I, I agree with that. I encourage everyone listening to go to boundarystone.org or for yourself, not only for your friends and your family, but for yourself, the, uh, The books are incredible you know the basic economics i love that i love all your books i mean i haven't read um some of the other but you know the great utopian delusion unmasking the sacred lies basic economics i mean those really should be required reading for yourself um okay well i i appreciate that paul greatly and uh and, well, uh, thanks for
1: having me on, James. I, I appreciate uh, spending time with you today.
0: All right. Listen, tell Kathy I said hello, have a great weekend, and maybe we can do it again.
1: Absolutely. All right, Talk to thanks. you later. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe. Otherwise, find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to join us weekly.